From First Street to K Street, outgoing senators and congressmen look for lobbyist opportunities, but they better watch out for revolving door regulations. Dr. Craig Holman joins us to explain this line of work. I'm Lawrence Coletti, and this is Legal Talk Today. Welcome back, listeners. I'm so glad to be here with you. Today, we're talking about lobbyists and their work in the government. And we're also talking about ethics and fairness when people call upon their elected officials to help shape public policy. And to help us with that discussion, we welcome Dr. Craig Holman from Public Citizen. Welcome to the show, sir. Uh, Glad to be here, Lawrence. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on with us. Dr. Holman, before we get started, can you tell us about your background in lobbying, campaign finance, and government ethics? Uh, Sure. I've been serving as the Capitol Hill lobbyist for Public Citizen for about 20 years now. I focus on money and politics issues, which includes everything from campaign finance reform to lobby reform to governmental ethics. I've helped draft several pieces of uh, major reform legislation like the Honest Leadership and Open Government Act, as well as the Stock Act. So that's pretty much what I do here on Capitol Hill. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Holman. So my first question for you is based on the perception of fairness. And so as it pertains to members of Congress, as they go about their work, how important is it for the uh, perception of fairness in the strength of government, meaning its ability to enforce the laws and the willingness of citizens to go along with them? The legitimacy in democracy relies on that perception of fairness. If the public has confidence that uh, the government is working in their own interests as opposed to uh, serving some sort of self-purpose for the lawmakers, then the government has legitimacy. Without that sense of legitimacy, the government will not be able to sustain political stability, and it, uh, it could very well face collapse. You know, I read an article in my preparation for this show, and it was written by J. Patrick Doble. It was titled The Strategic Advantage of Conflict of Interest Laws. And I, I wanted to see if you agreed with this uh, statement that he made. Now, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but this is what he said. He said, conflicts of interest and favoritism increase the cost of government service while also decreasing its equity and competence. Is that a statement you agree with? Why or why not? Absolutely correct. The conflict of interest poses a situation in which lawmakers or officials could take official actions that benefit just themselves, self-serving benefits, which usually is financial gain. If lawmakers are pursuing those types of self-serving interests, it costs the public dearly. It also undercuts the very legitimacy that's the foundation of our system. Conflicts of interest can be costly, which is so important to manage those conflicts of interest. Best of intentions and gift giving and close relationships. And so I was reading a little bit about how even just the best of intention people might not be aware of the influence that gift giving and close relationships have to them. In your experience, is that something, is that a legitimate fear that people might not be in touch with how much they're being influenced? I see that every news we have, you know, every time freshman congressmen come to Capitol Hill, they came here for a reason to pursue a policy agenda. But after they've been here for a while, they tend to get uh, a little bit 
too involved in the financial games that go on on Capitol Hill. And one of the most effective of trying to influence lawmakers is through gift giving. Uh, it's not a reciprocity principle. If lobbyists provide gifts to lawmakers or government officials, they may not even perceive it as an effort to bribe them, but it does develop this sense of, of reciprocity for the lawmaker. You know, we had someone like uh, Jack Abramoff, for instance, who had a table set aside in a restaurant that he ran right next to the Capitol called Signatures Restaurant, and he had a table set aside where it provided free whining and dining for any lawmaker that walked in there. They may not have perceived it as an actual bribe, but in the end, it did indebt them to Jack Abramoff. Uh, he became a very successful lobbyist and almost never lost on any of the issues that he pursued, and it was largely because of his gift giving. He eventually was convicted of bribery and went to prison. But until then, he was very successful. Depending on the public service position, there are some safeguards built into the system. Some of, uh, some of them might be gift-giving prohibitions, some of its mandatory disclosures, and some of its mandatory divestments of certain financial interests. And so in your experience, how, how effective have some of those uh, built-in safeguards been to protecting people against themselves, so to speak? They can be very effective if they're enforced. Prior to the Trump administration, they were largely largely enforced. The Office of Government Ethics would review every appointee into the administration, identify their financial conflicts of interest, and then require them to either divest from those financial conflicts of interest or recuse themselves from taking any official actions that would, uh, that would affect those financial interests. The problem is OG really is an advisory agency. It doesn't have the force of law to require this on appointees. And so what we've seen, especially under the Trump administration, is widespread uh, ignoring of these conflicts of interest. OGE wouldn't even get an opportunity in many cases to sit down and review the appointees into the Trump administration. And if they did, and, and drafted a, an ethics agreement, it really is up to the White House and the White House Council to enforce that ethics agreement. And we've seen uh, widespread lack of enforcement of the conflict of interest under the Trump administration to the point that we've never seen before. Well, let's transition into lobbying. And so I think a lot of people, their familiarity with it is what they see on TV, but it does serve an important purpose. So Dr. Holman, if you could give us a layman's definition as to what lobbying is, and then tell us why it's so important when you uh, go about trying to shape public policy. Well, first, I want to make it clear that I am a lobbyist. Uh, lobbying is a constitutional right of every citizen to contact their office holders and to try to you know, influence uh, their decisions in government. It is embedded in our constitution. And lobbying can serve a very, very useful purpose because members of Congress come to Capitol Hill and they usually know one thing, their business that they were doing in the, pri in the private sector. But once they come to Congress, they're asked to rule on everything from foreign 
foreign affairs to taxes to social domestic issues, things that they can't know everything about. And so it is important that people contact them to try to educate them on issues that they do not know about. The problem with lobbying is when lobbying gets uh, it gets achieved through financial gain as opposed to providing information. As a lobbyist for public citizen, I don't have money. So the only thing I do have to offer is information to try to influence public officials. But once again, if we talk about some of these K Street lobbyists or, you know, again, Jack Abramoff, he used money to try to win at the influence peddling game. And money can very frequently be much more effective than information. I can win if I can mobilize the public to get involved. If I cannot do that, I will frequently end up losing out to moneyed interests. Following this year's election, there's going to be senators and uh, House of Representative uh, members that are leaving their uh, their government service, and they'll probably be looking for a career in lobbying. But there's uh, there's some revolving door restrictions and cooling off periods that need to take place first before they can fully engage in that type of career. And so, Dr. Holman, can you tell us about some of those rules and restrictions that sort of hold people at bay for a certain period of time following their government service? The existing revolving door restriction is very minimal and uh, highly ineffective. All it calls for is that once a lawmaker, uh, a member of Congress leaves Congress, they cannot actually make a lobbying contact with Congress for one year in the House, two years in the Senate. What they can do and what almost all of them do is they join a lobby team They develop the lobby campaign, they work with a whole team of lobbyists and strategize the entire effort and then have someone else make the phone call. That is permissible under our revolving door restrictions. It's something that I have been battling ever since I've come to Capitol Hill for the last 20 years. And once we got very close to actually making the revolving door restriction meaningful, when I was working with on the Honest and Open Government Act back in 2007 with then Senator Barack Obama, we had drafted a revolving door restriction that would have closed that big loophole. We would have extended the cooling off period from one year to two years and prohibited former members of Congress from even doing lobbying activity or strategizing or, you know, being part of a lobbying campaign, not just prohibiting the lobbying contact, but actually prohibiting lobbying activity. We were almost getting that achieved in the Honest Leadership and Open Government Act, but then uh, several Democratic chairmen of uh, various committees who apparently were looking at the lucrative million dollar revolving door loophole objected so much that they were gonna kill the entire Honest Leadership and Open Government Act itself if we kept it in there. So we ended up having to pull the lobby, uh, the revolving door reforms out of the bill. Very unfortunate. By the way, I do wanna explain that uh, Obama 
believed in those revolving door restrictions to such an extent that a year later, he became president. And on day one of stepping into the White House, he issued an ethics executive order that had the most comprehensive revolving door restrictions we've seen to date. But they only applied to the Obama administration and not to Congress. Well, let's talk about the temptation. So as I understand it, there's definitely a lucrative career in being a lobbyist. So if you could just tell us about the uh, compare and contrast between what a successful lobbyist makes versus somebody that works in Congress. Sure. If you take a look at, say, the congressional salary today is $174,000 a year, which, you know, is a lot. But a, a member of Congress once they spin through that revolving door and join a lobby team, can can land salaries anywhere from one to three million dollars. Oh year. wow! Uh, so it's it's a huge huge financial gain for them. Depending on how well connected and how powerful they were in Congress, will determine their their final salary. What makes them so valuable? to lobby firms is that they have the connections inside Congress and inside the government. So, you know, uh, people will respond to them. When I place phone calls to members of Congress, you know, uh, they might return my call if they want to. But someone who is a former member of Congress or a former government official, they get access right away. And that makes them exceedingly valuable to lobby firms and very expensive. Although I don't agree with that, I certainly understand that temptation to get started early if you're making that much. But, uh, you know, Dr. Holman, what what are the penalties? Let's say that you push the line too hard and you violate those rules, those revolving door rules. What are the penalties potentially that could be faced by somebody that uh, breaks out just a little bit early? Well, the penalty sounds severe. I mean, it could be up to $50,000 fine or one year in prison. This is under uh, the federal statute 18 USC 207. The problem is it's so easy to sidestep these revolving door restrictions that I can't recall ever anyone being penalized for violating the revolving door. There have been violations of the Foreign Agents Registration Act when you've got people like Manafort who have been lobbying for foreign governments and then lying about it. And that's a more severe penalty. That can be anywhere up to $250,000 or five years in prison, which Manafort has recently discovered. But when it comes to the regular revolving door under the Lobby Disclosure Act, it's easily evaded and the penalties are quite light. and really never enforce just because the law is so easily sidestepped. Why is that? Why is it so easy to sidestep those regulations? It's just really hard to prove if you're uh, directly lobbying to members of uh, members of Congress. It's easily sidestepped because what most revolving door members of Congress do is they join a lobbying firm. They can even register as a lobbyist and they provide strategic consulting for the lobby firm and they just don't actually make the lobbying contact themselves. They can still visit 
with their friends in Congress and their staff, as long as legally they don't talk business. But who knows what they're talking about when they do visit. The real bottom line is they achieve everything they want to through strategic consulting. And that in itself is not a violation of the revolving door policy. We need to expand the revolving door policy towards what what Obama had been working on under the Honest Leadership and Open Government Act, and that's to ban lobbying activity as well as lobbying contacts during the, during the cooling off period. That would be easily enforced. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Holman. It's a real pleasure having you on. Sure, it's a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. And thank you listeners for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please subscribe directly to us in your favorite podcasting app. Also, I want to thank my producer, Molly McDonough, for her help putting this episode together. And of course, our LTN production team for their expertise and hard work. Thank you so much, guys. Much appreciated. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Have a great day, everybody. (laughs) 